Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revolution left two more points on the table Saturday night as they battled to a 0-0 draw against a weakened RSL side. New England was the dominant team for much of the match, holding 60% possession and outshooting the visitors 23-9, but they failed to find the net, leaving them with a single point to take away from this game. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today is Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? You know, the weekend with uh, started off pretty poorly with the Spurs <laughs> blowing a 1-0 lead against Leicester and VAR being uh, a killer for them in that one, and then... Uh, it, start, it ended with the Revolution having kind of a dull 0-0 draw against Salt Lake, so not my, my favorite soccer weekend. And the Red Sox were eliminated from playoff contention this weekend, so really not a great weekend for New England sports, but on the bright side, we don't have to deal with Antonio Brown anymore, so, you know, pros and cons, I guess, for this weekend, but... Uh, Let's get into this game. 0-0 draw, I think, for the remaining four games on the Revolution schedule. This was the clear game that, you know, if the Revs wanted to take control of their, their playoff hopes, this was the game that you want to take three points. Uh, luckily, some results uh, went in their way. Chicago drew Cincinnati yesterday. Uh, I know Orlando lost. Uh, a, a few of the teams that are below the Revolution did not take advantage of the Revs, only taking one point in this game. So it's, it really might not hurt them in the long term, but uh, certainly disappointing that the Revolution came out against a weakened uh, Salt Lake side and still only came away with a draw. Uh, Sean, what was your key takeaway from this game? Yeah, I know you make a great point. It was, it was a very weakened Salt Lake team, and I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get to see some some legends out there that you know are coming to the end of their career and guys like Nick Romano and, and Kyle Beckerman. Um, but it, it was, yeah, it was a, a Salt Lake team that didn't look very good on paper, and you know the Revolution went into this game looking like they were going to be a team that um, you know, would have the upper hand against Salt Lake. And yes, they had a lot of possession, but if you look at the first half before Gustavo Bo came on, the Revolution only managed five shots. Um, there was five to four advantage in shots by the Revs. Salt Lake actually had two shots on target. The Revolution only had one. Um, the Revolution probably had the best chance of that half, but uh, it was really the second half that the Revolution became more dominant with, uh, I think, 18 shots on target, or 18 shots total in the second half, two on target, though. Um, it, so it, like you, you mentioned Gustavo Bo. Everyone was expecting him to start this game, and then news came out that he picked up a knock last weekend that apparently nobody had heard about, uh, which is an, another thing we can, we can talk about. But uh, this game just really showed how much the revolution depend on Gustavo Bo at this point. I think there was a, a lack of urgency in the first half without him out there. And I, 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 you almost wonder if the guys just knew he was going to come on in the second half, and as long as they kept it 0 0, you know, he could kind of carry them. But, you know, there's a lot of talent on this revolution team, attacking talent, and we've you know, seen them be successful without. When Arena first took over, um, and it just seems like now they're they're extremely reliant on him. Salt Lake was kind of content content to be sort of compact with the guys they were missing, uh, and the Revolution really didn't do much to break them down. It's, it's you know kind of sad when you're facing a team like Salt Lake missing all those guys and you only manage five shots in the half and just get one on target. Um, you know, Carly Seal had a fantastic shot that hit the crossbar, so you know credit for that. But that kind of was something out of nothing. Um, they just weren't very creative in that first half and. Uh, you know, Gustavo Bo came on and honestly didn't really look like he was hurt and played really well and, and contributed a lot of shots for the Revolution. And I think he, I think you were the one that pointed out that he actually led the team in, in shots in this game, um, despite only playing 45 minutes. But uh, it just it just really showed the Revolution kind of focused too much on him at this point. And there, there were one or two times in this game too where the ball got to Gustavo Bo and you know he was kind of in a tight spot at the top of the box and he opted to take a shot and 
you know, actually hit the target, but he perhaps could have done a bit better if he passed it, you know, one more player wide where there was an open guy on the side of the box. So um, the offense just kind of runs through him at this point. Uh, at least the, the final shot kind of seems to run through him at this point. And um, in this game, when they were without him for 45 minutes, I don't think it was good enough. Yeah, I, I agree. It was a bit of a tale of two halves between the Revs. The first half, they didn't seem to have any um, flow whatsoever. It seemed like the team uh, really missed uh, Gustavo Bo's presence in the first half. Carles Hill certainly created a couple chances and did a lot on his own, but uh, you can see having another, another attacking playmaker out there um, really changes the dynamic of this offense. And, um, you know, we've talked about Juan Fernando Caicedo uh, and, you know, how I think he's a, a Decent finisher. I think he's a decent supporting piece, but when he's out there, really the only thing he can do is finish chances, uh, and there really wasn't a lot of service for him, so he was a bit of a useless player, whereas you bring in Gustavo Bo in the second half, and you're right. Uh, he had six shots yesterday. Um, only one of them made him on target, but still, uh, he, he certainly was a... Um, a great threat, and I thought Gustavo Bo had the game winner there in stoppage time, Sean, uh, where uh, Diego Fagundes starts the fast break out, slides to heel down the right wing. Uh, he cuts it back to Gustavo Bo, and Bo uh, kicks a 65-yard field goal that landed somewhere uh, somewhere in Franklin, Mass. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Gustavo Bo, besides that uh, botched shot, shot aside in stoppage time, uh, I thought he came out, and that Revs offense looked uh, significantly more on point and, um, you know, you have to think if Gustavo Bo played a full 90 minutes, the Revs take three points in this game. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you mentioned that, that last sequence at the end. That was probably one of the more disappointing sequences of, of uh, Gustavo Bo's revolution career, if not the most disappointing, because it started off with, with him throwing the ball away. He took a quick throw and, and threw it right to, to Salt Lake and put the revolution on the back foot. Um, and then it, what was disappointing to me on that play, too, was that he kind of put his head down there and really didn't make any effort to... You know, go chase down the ball. Um, but then you, it, it almost worked out for him because he was left in an offensive position when the Revolution did manage to get a quick turnover and, and get the counterattack. Um, but then he got put in a great position to, you know, have a great shot on target and uh, just completely whiffed at it. So uh, not not one for the highlight reel for Gustavo Bo, but it's unquestionably changed the game when he came on. You know, just looking at other stats too, the, the Revolution only attempted seven take-ons in the first half, which is you know, them trying to, to beat a defender. Um, in the second half, they attempted 20. Uh, so you, you really can tell they seemed a lot more ambitious in the second half, a lot more willing to try things and, uh, you know, put a lot more pressure on and showed more urgency. But they needed to have that urgency from the beginning of the game. And uh, this was one of those games that you know looked like a must win going into the game. As it turns out, the other results throughout the league really meant it wasn't a must win. And pretty much every result went the Revolution's way uh, last night. So that helped them out. But, you know, for a game of such importance and, and a stretch where the Revolution really haven't been playing that well and haven't been getting the results that they need, um, it was kind of surprising to me that it took till, till Gustavo Bo came on to, to see the urgency that they should have had since the beginning. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, to be fair to RSL's uh, defense, they seem to come out and play for a draw. They seem to want to frustrate the Revs um, at every opportunity. They didn't seem to have much of an interest in scoring. Uh, Salt Lake only had two shots on target, both of them from Kellen Rowe, both of them uh, a bit from distance. Uh, so really not a whole lot of um, chances, good scoring chances from RSL. Uh, I, I don't know what the expected goals difference is going to be, but I'm sure uh, Real Salt Lake is going to be below one. It didn't seem like a, a game they had much interest in uh, finding the back of the net. So, um, yeah, a really a really tough pill to swallow for the Revs because 
the results didn't go their way. I, I feel like the revs for the past month or, or six weeks have been getting results that have been good enough to get them by, and it might be good enough to get them into the playoffs. Uh, but if Gustavo Bo is able to convert that that shot there in, in stoppage time, um, we're talking about the revs basically clinching a playoff spot this morning, as opposed to looking at the schedule and trying to you know figure out where they're going to scrape up three or four points to get into the playoffs. So um, a huge chance uh, missed, and uh, you have to wonder. I, I didn't hear really what the injury was from Gustavo Bo. I know that um, Jeff Lemieux said that he trained once this week and it was a partial training. Uh, there were some people online that said Gustavo Bo didn't look like he went through all of his warmups. Um, you know, it, it, there obviously something is wrong with Gustavo Bo, uh, but he came in the second half, uh, which was ahead of schedule. I, I know they said on the Revolution broadcast last night that um, the plan was for him to come in the 60, 65th minute, and they ended up putting him in the second half because they desperately needed him on there. Um, he looked perfectly fine, and Bruce Arena says that he'll be ready to go against Portland. So I'm not sure what the injury was. It seems to be a little unclear. He was not on the injury report. Uh, but it's a pretty significant uh, absence from that starting lineup, and, and that might change uh, the course of, of the Rev season. Can we just talk about how useless injury reports have been this season? How many times has there been nobody on the injury report? And then, you know, two or three guys were, for whatever reason, had some knock that, in this case, apparently they knew about as rec- as far away as, as last weekend. So I, what is the point of the injury report this, at this point, at this juncture? Because it's just completely useless. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I, I get teams don't want to disclose injuries because, you know, it, it probably is kind of like a Bill Belichickian thing where you don't want other teams to know about injuries and, and, you know, give them more information on how to prep for you. Um, but with that being said, I, I mean, I don't understand why you can't list players as questionable. You know, there it's not necessarily in or out or doubtful or whatever. You could put someone questionable with a minor injury, which is what this sounded like. Uh, so I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Injury reports. I don't know why. I, I mean, we don't use them for information, Sean. Uh, I think that we get most of our inf- injury information from uh, Jeff Lemieux on Twitter. Uh, but e- even still, I mean, we heard nothing about Gustavo Bo's injury at all until game time uh, and that lineup came out. Uh, even before lineups came out, you'd think that they would drop a bit of a, you know, piece of information a, a little bit before so fans are a little bit braced uh, and don't have a complete heart attack when they see Gustavo Bo sitting on the bench. But um, yeah, it, and you also have to wonder too, with the midweek match, did they want to rest him? Did they not want to push him too hard? Um, I, I'm not, I don't know if I buy into that theory completely because I think this is the game you needed three points from. Uh, I, I think this is the um, more likely game where you're going to win uh, as opposed to at Portland, which is, you know, a cross country match. Uh, it's midweek. Um, you know, you're going to have tired legs. I don't think that game is as solid of a win as this one would have been, especially after seeing Real Salt Lake's uh, lineup. So um, I, I don't know if I buy into the theory that uh, Gustavo Bo was being rested. I, I think that if he was um, good enough to play 45 minutes and if this was a minor injury, um, I don't know, I, I think he should have been in there. But who knows? We, we A lot of details unknown, um, and we'll see if it pops up again. It's It'll be something interesting to watch the rest of the season. It seems to be pretty private, so I don't know. Uh, I want to get to my takeaway, uh, which is actually I'm, I'm going to give some credit to the defensive midfield last night. Uh, Wilfred Zahibo, I thought, had a arguably man-of-the-match performance yesterday. Um, I know we've talked about him really improving since uh, Bruce Arena came in charge. Last night he had five shots. Only one was on target. Three were blocked. Uh, but he was 49 for 58 passing. That's good enough. That's that's 84.5%. He was also 13 for 16 uh, for passes into the attacking third. Uh, he had two chances created, six ball recoveries, three for four 
on aerial duels, two tackles, one clearance, uh, and he he created one of the better chances in the first half, which was a long ball over the top to Christian Pena, which uh, Pena scuffs the shot, misses pretty poorly wide, um, but it was a really nice long ball over the top that made something out of nothing, too. Uh, Luis Caicedo, too, had a great night. Stats aren't as impressive. One shot off target, 39 for 47 passing, 83%. Um, Two for five in the attacking third. He really wasn't a factor into the Revs' offense, uh, but four ball recoveries, two tackles, one clearance, uh, and he did a really good job, I thought, filling in for Brandon By and Dewan Jones when they pushed up. Uh, he did some a great job kind of catching up uh, and, and shutting down some... Uh, 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 counterattacks on the wings. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the defensive midfield uh, really came up big yesterday, and uh, they don't get a lot of credit, but uh, Zahibo and Caicedo has turned into a very stable pairing, and for a position that I think a lot of fans wanted to see an upgrade in the middle of the season, uh, both of them have stepped up uh, throughout the year. And, uh, again, I mean, RSL didn't have a whole lot of chances. They weren't really pushing a lot of people forward, uh, but when they did, Zahibo and Caicedo uh, seemed to squash any opportunities. So uh, they get positive marks from me from yesterday. Yeah, I agree. And, and we've probably been some of the bigger critics of MLS all-star Wilfred Zahibo and, and his play over the years for the, for the revolution. Um, but he really has kind of changed the type of player he's been under Bruce Arena. I don't know if the instructions from Arena have been better or what, but he's been looking a lot better. And I, I agree, there isn't a case for him to be man of the match from for what, how he played last night. Um, the only thing I will say about Luis Caicedo is I thought he had a fantastic game. But there, there was one play that could have made that fantastic game be a, you know, a, a LVP type of game had he actually connected with Corey Bard when on that play where Bard kind of blew past him and he couldn't catch up. And uh, it looked like he stumbled and went down and tried to grab Corey Bard and drag him down from behind. And what almost certainly would have been a red card. Um, and, and had he succeeded in what he was trying to do, um, the Revolution probably would have gone on to lose the game rather than even get the draw. So, uh, you know, his, his game, I thought, overall was very, very good. But that one play there could have been boneheaded enough to, to cost the team the game. So that was kind of surprising to see. He is a young guy, but he's got to have better awareness than that in that situation, um, especially because De La Mayo was, was also kind of there to help out. And De La Mayo eventually did uh, you know, kind of stop that chance from turning into anything too, too significant. Um, but it's, it's hard for me to ignore that, that one particular play from, from Luis Caicedo, who's been fantastic all season. Um, but you, you'd like to see a, a bit better... Uh, soccer intelligence and soccer awareness in a, in a situation like that, um, especially in a season where the Revolution have had you know, quite a few costly red cards. And, and quite a few costly non-red cards that turned into red cards, uh, I would True. say. Uh, you know, VAR it never seems to give us the benefit of the doubt, so anything that is borderline, I, I, I think a lot of us uh, are bracing for the worst-case scenario. So uh, a few other players that I, I don't necessarily think we need to get into, but I think deserve some credit. Uh, De La Mea had another great game. Seven, uh, seven aerials won yesterday. He had 94% pass accuracy. Uh, so he, was, he had a bit of a quiet night, too, in the defense, but he was pretty solid. And in a game where I think they, they weren't really passing in the back very well, uh, Brandon By and Juan Jones had some issues with pass accuracy, but Andrew Farrell and uh, De, La Mea, De La Mea more specifically had a, a pretty solid game in ball control and distributing the ball out of the back, especially in the second half. Uh, Matt Turner, I also you know got to give him credit. Clean sheet, fourth of the season for him, only the ninth of his career. It seems like he has a lot more, uh, but... Um, only two shots on target, both of them from Kellen Rowe. Uh, there was another play where Sam Johnson, uh, Andrew Farrell seems to fall down. Sam Johnson is alone on goal, and Turner kind of cuts down on the angle. So he does not get credit for a save there, but Turner handled that one pretty well. So 
uh, have to give Matt Turner a little bit of credit too for keeping RSL uh, out of uh, out of the back of the net. Um, outside of that, pretty lackluster performances from the Rebs offense. Uh, Twenty three shots uh, from New England yesterday. Ten of them were blocked, so you got to give some credit to RSL. Uh, but still, of the thirteen remaining shots, two were on target. Uh, you have to give a little bit of credit for Carly Askeel and Brandon By for hitting the post on, but you know, still. A bit of a lacking, lacking that final finish, uh, and it really kind of cost the revolution yesterday. So we, we've already kind of gone into that and the um, struggles for the Revs' offense. But worth noting that they, they, you know, we've kind of been back and forth over whether or not the Revs' uh, offense is, you know, if their finishing is strong or if their their finishing is weak. And it seems like their Jackal and Hyde performances continue as they only find th- three shots on target yesterday. Uh, Sean, I, I want to kind of get into the substitution pattern, though. Um, obviously, Gustavo Bo came on for Juan Fernando Caicedo yesterday at halftime. Uh, but there, we did get a question about Juan Agadello coming in for Luis Caicedo in the, I want to say, around the 65th minute or the 60th minute. Uh, Mike Kennedy asked us if the Revs should have stuck with Luis Caicedo longer or was bringing in Agadello the right move. Uh, I just praise Luis Caicedo for his game, but uh, I also mentioned he wasn't really making much of an impact in the final third. So, uh, Sean, do you think Bruce Arena made the correct decision uh, bringing in Juan Agadello at that point in the game? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not a huge fan either of, of Aguadelo coming in as a substitution for Luis Caicedo there. Um, I, I, I just I haven't been particularly impressed with Juan Aguadelo overall this season. He's had his moments, but it just it just seems like to me that um, he, he doesn't add enough offensively to justify what you're perhaps giving up defensively there. And, it, you know, as it turned out, the Revolution didn't uh, give up too many chances defensively after Aguadelo came on. Um, but at the time, I wasn't a, a huge fan of the substitution. I think Caicedo just covers so much more ground than, than Juan Aguadelo. Uh, Aguadelo did end up with, with two key passes, um, so he did add to the offense. He added more to the offense than, say, Diego Fagundes did when he came on. Um, but, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm a, a huge fan of, of that sub at that point of the game, especially given the, the overall game that, that Luis Caicedo was, was having. I would have liked to see Diego Fagundes come on for Christian Pena sooner than he did because I didn't think Pena was having a particularly good game. Um, you mentioned that that chance he got early from Zihibo that he scuffed. He had a couple other chances that I thought he should have done better with um, in this one. So I kind of would have liked to see Diego Fagundes come on earlier. With that said, Fagundes, I thought, when we talk about substitutions, didn't do enough when he came on. Um, kind of had the opportunity to help change the game and, and didn't get involved as much as he would have liked to have seen. Yeah, he had that interception uh, in stoppage time, uh, which he led that counterattack. But outside of that, I, I don't know what else Diego Fagundes really did yesterday. Um, but... And, and in terms of Christian Pena, I thought he started out really strong. He doesn't seem to be a 90-minute player anymore for the Revolution. Uh, he did have that really nice low cross that uh, Teal Bunbury was not able to finish. He was at a bit of a tough angle. Uh, so, But but Christian Pena had a, a couple really nice moments in the first half, and I, I think he still should be starting or at least should be um, coming in as a super sub. He, I, I still think he has a role on this team, but um, is he a consistent player for 90 minutes? No, uh, he, he really isn't. And it's very frustrating to see uh, this guy who clearly has a lot of skill, but he's not able to put it together for a, a long period of time. But I think, I think the biggest disappointment with him has been over the past two games. Anyway, is the finishing because he's, he's getting himself in good positions and he's making good runs. Um, but his final shot, and albeit he had that you know, great chip, uh, the previous game, but his final shot. Otherwise, other than that, has has kind of been a letdown on what have been easier chances than, than certainly that one was. Yeah, three three shots not on target for Christian Pena yesterday. Um, so there's some good, there is some bad. He did have 84.4 percent passing accuracy uh, according to who scored. So um, 
you know, good and some good, some bad from Christian Pena, which has kind of been uh, the story for him for the season. But uh, anyway, let's get back to uh, Juan Agadello. He was 10 for 13 on passing, 8 for 10 in the attacking third. Uh, he did have two key passes, as you said, Sean. Um, did have two ball recoveries. Uh, and as you said, two chances created, one tackle, one block. Uh, I mean, this is a, the, the substitution that was made was a offensive player for a defensive player. And when you're going for three points, I mean, I, I think that's a roll of the dice that Bruce Arena is going to take. 10 times out of 10. And I, I, I get the, the logic behind it. I don't think Luis Caicedo is going to add a whole lot to the offense. Um, you know, 25 minutes left. Uh, yeah, 25 minutes left. Uh, Caicedo came out in the 65th minute. So um, it's a bit of a desperation move. And, and we've seen that, I think, that exact same substitution, uh, you know, go against the Revs. I, I think it was the Toronto game where that exact same sub came in uh, and the Revs got exploited on the counterattack. But uh, yesterday, a weekend RSL lineup really didn't have much of a counterattack to muster. Um I know there were a few players that kind of pushed forward, but even in the closing minutes, uh, I think there was one time yesterday where uh, I, I forget who it was on Real Salt Lake, but uh, Dewan Jones was pretty much guarding him alone in the box. Uh, Farrell was kind of uh, helping Brandon Bay out on the right flank, uh, and De La Mayo was kind of covering someone else somewhere in the box, and Dewan Jones had someone who was much taller than him uh, just kind of standing alone in the box, and I thought it would have been a great uh, chance for RSL to swing across in, but RSL seemed more concerned about holding possession and killing the clock. So uh, I, I think in hindsight, that sub didn't really harm them at all. Uh, if it was a better team like Atlanta or New York City FC or LAFC, I could see a counterattack or, or, really going against Or Salt Lake with them. their starters. Or Salt Lake with their starters. I, I could see them punching home a goal. I think you actually tweeted that yesterday. That this seemed like a game that RSL puts in you know, one player that can really you know, change the counterattack for that team and, and get that goal for RSL. Um, but RSL never really seemed to have any interest in doing that. They were happy with the point. So, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, I, I think Juan Agadello is the was the correct move. And honestly, you could argue that he should have been in there sooner uh, now that you know the end result. But at the time, I was a little hesitant to uh, seeing, uh, seeing Juan Agadello come in for Caicedo because I, I don't think he is as solid defensively as a lot of people think. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I was, I have the same reservations of that move. The, the actually, actually the sub that I thought was a bit interesting was Gustavo Bo coming in for Juan Caicedo. Um, uh, not necessarily cause I, I, Bo didn't need to come into that game, but Teal Bunbury pushing up to striker. I, I'm, I mean, I, we go back and forth on Teal Bunbury too. Like every Ruffs fan, I was a little surprised to see Teal stay in the game as opposed to Juan Fernando Caicedo, who, you know, the last time we saw him score was at New York City FC. He can make something out of nothing. If he gets some good service, he's going to finish his chances, whereas Teal Bunbury is hot and cold, and right now he seems to be a little bit cold. Um, do you think uh, keeping in Teal was the correct choice, Sean? Yeah, I, I go back and forth on, on that move as well. I, the one thing I will say is I noticed pretty much from the opening kickoff, um, Teal Bunbury's hold the play actually was, was kind of effective in this game. Um, there was a play really shortly into the game where it was a long ball forward and he, he laid it off to, I forget who it was, but it kind of led to a, a decent revolution attacking pressure. Um, Juan Caicedo, I don't think was in, as involved as you would have liked to have seen him in this one. He, in 45 minutes, he didn't get off a single shot. Um, but you know, he's, he's a better finisher than Teal Bunbury. There's no question about it. And, you know, in a game where the revolution only got three shots on target, they, they could have used that. Um, you know, he was a guy that would have been kind of nice to have on the bench to, to bring on as a, as a sub maybe in the 60th minute or something to, to add more to the attack. Um, so it was unfortunate that the Revolution got themselves in you know, that, that position where they needed a goal late and um, you know, really bringing on Gustavo Bo for, for Juan Fernando Caicedo isn't an offensive sub. It's at best a, kind of a neutral sub because 
uh, you know, Gustavo Bo generally plays a little bit further back than, than Amon Caicedo. Um, he is a more dangerous player, but it's not really going, it's not really adding a more offensive player on for, for a uh, defensive guy. Uh, so, uh, you know, I kind of agree it was an interesting choice. Um, but I, I do think Teal Bunbury had had the, the better game up until that point. So I, I, I kind of get it. Um, it was, you know, another one of those games, though, where when it, when it got late, you almost wish you had a guy like Brian Wright on the bench that you could have brought on, who you know, I think also scored a, a goal this weekend at, at Birmingham. Yeah, I think he's up to five or six goals now in Birmingham. He's been hot lately, and he's making an argument that the Revs should hang on to him for a little bit. Uh, having Brian Wright down at USL, kind of showing what he's got, um, I think that's been a pleasant surprise. And uh, I'm not really sure what the Revolution are going to do with him at the end of the season. It's going to be very interesting. He's certainly making a case that he might be a productive player at MLS, but uh, we'll see what happens with Brian Wright. Uh, we did get another question, though, from Mike Kennedy. He asked, would Bo have been more threatening in Bunbury's role tonight? Uh, I know Bunbury moved from the wing to up at striker, but um, do you think Gustavo Bo should have gotten more time at striker, or do you think uh, he, he needs to stay in kind of that roaming, attacking midfield position? I still kind of like him in that roaming position. I think he's got a great ability to just kind of take people on one-on-one and kind of create chances on his own to, to some extent when he gets the ball with you know facing goal. Um, I, I think he probably works better than as a, as a striker up there. Um, we have seen him score, I think, one headed goal for the Revolution, but he's not much of a, of a target overall. He's more of a, a guy that you know, takes shots on the ground and um, you know, w- with his feet and is, is great at you know, making that one dribble to get by somebody and create a shot. And I think if you put him up in Teal Bunbury's role, you're kind of losing a bit of his, his best talents uh, up there. So I, I, I don't think I agree that he'd be better off in, in Teal Bunbury's role, but... Um, and and he, you know, I thought he was pretty effective in this game overall. Just you know, a couple of shots that maybe should have been better, better especially that late one that we mentioned. But uh, I, I think his best role is probably more of a slightly more withdrawn and more of a roaming role where he can have the freedom to, to kind of take guys on. Yeah, and I, I think they're, the Revs are lacking that kind of second option in the midfield when, you know, if you move Bo up to the striker position, uh, I think Carlos Heel, um, you know, is in need a little bit of help in terms of ball control and possession uh, and and bow and heel you know really work well together in uh in advancing the ball up whereas i think if you move bow to be kind of the target man up top uh who kind of makes runs behind the defense um i think heel is going to draw more attention and be a little less effective uh whereas when bow is there um the, it causes the defense nightmares all over the place so um, one more note about Teal Bunbury. We talked about how hot he was earlier in the summer uh, and how he, he couldn't stop scoring. Teal Bunbury is now eight appearances uh, without a goal. Now, one of those appearances was last week at Orlando City when he got five minutes. Uh, then, of course, there was the 12-minute appearance against the Chicago Fire. Uh, but the rest of them, 90 minutes, 73 minutes, 90 minutes, 90 minutes, 72 minutes, 90 minutes. Uh, so that's six starts or games where he's played the majority um, that – he has been unable to find the net, which is not something you like to see out of Teal Bunbury. Uh, he, he is very streaky, and right now uh, he's on a bit of a cold streak. So, uh, Sean, uh, before we get into uh, listener questions, one other thing I want to point out to our listeners is just the Rev situation. We kind of alluded to it at the beginning about um, you know some results going the Revolution's way in this game, not being as damaging as we thought it would when the final whistle blew. Uh, the Revs are now four points away from clinching a playoff spot. They have three games left at Portland, home versus New York City FC at Atlanta. Uh, Chicago is most likely to catch them. I would say they have two games left, home versus Toronto at FC and at Orlando. 
Uh, Montreal uh, has has two games also. They are at Atlanta, which I think we can chalk up to be a loss, but we'll see. And then home versus New York uh, Red Bulls. They also play in the second leg of the Canadian Championship against TFC, so they might not even have a fully wet, rested lineup next week against Atlanta. Uh, and then Orlando, who is a bit of a long shot at Cincinnati and home versus Chicago. Uh, so the Revs need four points to clinch over Chicago, three over Montreal, and two to knock out Orlando. Uh, Sean, how are you feeling about the Revs' playoffs hopes right now? Um, they seem to be lined up for that seventh spot, but you know, with a tough schedule up ahead, uh, I think a lot of fans are nervous. Uh, how would you rate their chances right now? Yeah, I mean, they, they got really lucky this weekend because there was a, you know, a time where Orlando was ahead of Houston for, I think, the majority of that game. Um, and that would have really changed things if Orlando had won that game. And, and Chicago against Cincinnati, that was a game that you know you would have thought Chicago could have done better in, but Chicago managed a total of one shot on target in that one. Uh, so speaking of teams that kind of disappointed, um, you know, if they had won that game, then it would be a whole other ball game. I, you know, I, I still think, like you said, Chicago is probably the team that has the the best chance of catching the Revolution. I think the Revolution are in a position where they they probably are going to need to win one of their last three games to to make the playoffs. And I'm I'm not sure their schedule is that easy. Um, in which, you know, any of those games look very winnable. Uh, you know, Montreal played this last weekend. Montreal has lost three straight games. So that tells you where Montreal could be um, had they been playing a bit better. They lost to Cincinnati, you know, last weekend. Um, had they won that game, they'd be putting a lot more pressure on the Revolution. And then they lost to the Galaxy this weekend, 2-1, um, to one in, in a game in which Montreal left really all of their best players at home. Um, so it seems like they're taking the Canadian Championship more seriously than MLS, and I'm almost kind of giving up. On, on playoff play. Um, so with that in mind, it, it really is just Chicago. That t- in my mind, that's a threat to the revolution. And Chicago plays home versus Toronto, um, which is a tough game. But, you know, any home game I, I see as potentially winnable. And Toronto has, you know, been up and down this season. So potentially they win that game. And then they're on the road at, at Orlando, who, you know, by week 34 could very well have been mathematically eliminated, depending on how results go. So, you know, there's a potential that Chicago could win both those games. And if they do, the, the Revolution could be in, in some trouble because the, the Revolution, given their, their poor goal differential and that being the, the tiebreaker that would come into play with the, with the fire because in any situation in which they were tied on points, um, they'd have to be tied on wins as well. Uh, you know, there is some concern there. Um, so if the Revolution go into to Portland and, and lose, which is, you know, a very real possibility, um, then I'm not that confident in the Revolution's playoff chances. I still think that, you know, they're more likely than not to make the playoffs, but, um, and, you know, and very much thanks to the results this weekend, but I, I don't think it's by any means an assured thing unless the Revolution can find a way to, to win at least one of these last three games. And uh, it just seems like a kind of a tough schedule for the Revolution to, to even get one win. Yeah, they need one win to really push them over the edge. Uh, and again, this this weekend against RSL would have been, the game to do it, uh, and I think after they dominated this game and, and seemed to be the team that was on the front foot, uh, not coming away with, even with the results kind of going the Revolution's way, uh, it, it looks like a game that's going to come back to bite them in the end. And honestly, it shows that this team is, you know, going into the playoffs, you lose a little bit of confidence knowing that you're going to have to go on the road and play a much stronger team than the team that was there in Foxborough last night. Um and, and yeah, you, you just worry if this is a team that's able to close the door and come through when they need to. So, uh, but anyway, let's get to some listener questions. And on this topic, Revolution Report asks us, uh, what is the most winnable game of the last three? Uh, Sean, of these remaining three games, which one is the most uh, most likely to get the Revs the three points that they need? I know Providence, I mean, uh, Portland has been struggling at Providence Park. 
um, in their last few games. But I, I, I think on short rest going into Portland, that, that game doesn't strike me as very winnable. Um, you know, I have to go with the, the home game against New York City FC, which also seems like a very difficult match. Um, but again, any game at home on the Gillette Stadium turf, you have to give the Revolution a, a good shot at winning. Um, so just by nature of that being a home game, I think that would be the one I would see as the most winnable. Um, at, at Atlanta, if Joseph Martinez is out for that game, um, you know, I still don't really see that one as very winnable. Um, maybe a draw is, is the best result, and maybe the Revolution going to that game needing a draw. Um, but, you know, I, I would have to say the New York City FC game for the sole reason that it's a, a home game for the Revolution. Um, but all three of those games look like games that you know could be points dropped for the Revolution, and I, I don't think the Revolution go into any of them uh, as favorites, even even at home against New York City FC. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, it, it's kind of a downer to finish the season at Atlanta. It's going to be interesting to see if they need a win at Atlanta and how aggressive they play it, because that could get really ugly really fast the revs don't have a really good history uh going down there and playing in the mercedes-benz dome or whatever it's called down there uh i i agree i think the home game against new york city fc it's a rival you know them pretty well um i i think that is the most winnable of the remaining three uh midweek game on the west coast really doesn't strike me as a great option uh to win uh, now with that being said portland's also on low rest and for whatever reason the revs seem to come out and play really well on the west coast um but i i think you know teal bunbury did an interview with the far post podcast a few months ago and he said you know if we win our home games we're in the playoffs uh and and i think that's just the emphasis that the revs have that you, you know when teams come into foxborough uh you know they're going to be the better team and they're, they're going to try to win the game uh, and i think that's the game i i think they might be a little more conservative and play for a point at portland um, maybe not play for a point, I should say, but um, I could see their their game plan being a lot more aggressive home against New York City FC as opposed to going on the road um, cross country with some tired legs. Uh, that that might be a game where they're not happy taking a point, but they will settle for a point. Whereas I don't see them holding back anything against New York City FC. I, I think that if it's a one one game or a two two game in the 80th minute. Uh, the Revs are going to push everyone forward trying to find that goal, uh, and, and hopefully they get lucky. So uh, I, I would say that if there's a win, I think it's next week uh, at home against New York City FC. Yeah, I mean, all the Revs need is, is a win and a draw to guarantee them a spot in the playoffs. So if they were to go into Portland and get a draw, I think that would be a good result. But it would still mean they need to win one of their last two games. Um, but but to me, you know, going into Portland, if you end up grinding out a 0-0 result, I think, don't think that's realistic. I don't think the Revolution are built to play games like that. But if you go in there and, and get a draw one way or another, um, I, to me, that would be a good result for the Revolution. Um, I, I do think there's a you know realistic possibility that Chicago could you know win their last two games, in which case four points would be a must for the Revolution. So any result in Portland, in my mind, is, is a good thing for the Revolution. But there's you know they've put themselves in a position where they really might need to win that game at home against New York City FC, where a draw might not be enough. Um, because you you really don't want to be in a position where you have to get three points out of Atlanta. And TFC will be playing in the Canadian Championship against Montreal, so they might have tired legs going to Chicago. And then by the time Chicago goes to Orlando, Orlando might be knocked out as well. So um, very good chance that Orlando might be playing some second-team guys, might not be taking that as seriously as possible. So, yeah, Chicago is a much better threat. I, I would say the Revs are still in the driver's seat, um, but yeah, you, you have to be a little bit concerned with how the schedule is shaking out. 
Uh, Revolution Report also asks us, uh, looking ahead to a potential playoff game, would you rather play Philadelphia or would you play Atlanta United minus Joseph Martinez? Yeah, that's a, a tough one for me. I, I'd been, you know, last week I think I got asked this question before without the Joseph Martinez injury taking place. Um, and Philadelphia to me then was the kind of the, the clear choice. Um, I still think it's easier to play in Philadelphia. But with, with that said, um, Atlanta United hasn't been as good this year as they have been in the past. They've still been a fantastic team and uh, recovered after kind of a poor start to the season. Um, but, you know, if, if given the opportunity to play at Philadelphia or at Atlanta um, with Joseph Martinez out, even though Atlanta is a very, very difficult place to play, um, I think the Revolution might be better off going to Atlanta, just given that they haven't been you know, as good of a team this year and then losing Joseph Martinez, the best striker in the league, um, you know, going into that match is, is going to be devastating for them. Um, and, and the Revolution will have just finished the season playing at Atlanta, so they, they shouldn't be too intimidated by the crowd uh, because they will have experienced it just the week before. Um, so I'm, I'm revising my pick now that Joseph Martinez is out and, and saying Atlanta, but um, I think either of those games would be very difficult for the Revolution. I'd hope they'd play against Philadelphia so I could go to the game. That's what I say. I mean, I hope they play against Philadelphia. I, I'm with you on that one. You, you, would you make the road trip down? We'll have to do live coverage from <laughs> Talon Energy Stadium, from lovely Chester, Pennsylvania. <laughs> no, I would, I would definitely like to go to that game. So for selfish reasons, I think Philadelphia would be the, the matchup I'd like to see. With that being said, though, Philadelphia is no slouch. I mean, they are a very, very solid young team, and I think a lot of players are – or a lot of – Pundits and, and casual MLS fans just kind of know Philadelphia as kind of a team that in previous years have kind of bounced around kind of the bottom of the playoff picture in the Eastern Conference standing, and they, they don't come across as a juggernaut like NYCFC Atlanta or Atlanta, but uh, that's a very tough game for the Revolution to go into at Philadelphia. They're, they're very good, and they're very young. Uh, I mean, that is a... That's a tough team, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think this is as easy a question as you think. I think Atlanta might be the better matchup, but... Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't like their odds in either one of them, if I'm being totally upfront about it. so. Yeah, and, and Philly's last two games, a, a draw against LAFC, the best team in the league, and a 3-1 victory over Atlanta. So kind of kind of tells you that Philadelphia is for real with getting results like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Gustavo Bo is the best striker on Discord. Asked us why couldn't Bo start the game? He played the entire ha- second half, so it couldn't have been an injury. Uh, if Bruce thought this game was a must-win, like he said, why not start Bo? Uh, so this is this is a bit of a oh, and he also says why not rest Bo at Portland uh, after taking three points at home if you start Gustavo Bo? So so this kind of echoes something I said earlier. I, I think this is the truth that uh, Gustavo Bo was limited in training and, and might not have been fully 90 minutes fit because I, I think the best strategy if you want to rest Bo and limit his minutes uh, would have been to start him tonight and uh, rest him in the midweek match. Uh, so I, I, I think he was playing with a minor injury. I don't know if it was a strain. I'm not sure what it was. It didn't seem to affect him. Uh, but, you know, Bruce Arena says he is fully fit for the Portland game. I'm not sure if I totally believe it. But, um, you know, if he if he does play 90 minutes on Portland, uh, in Portland, um, uh, there's some questions I that I think went unanswered on what exactly happened here because he was certainly missed in the first half. Jared Michaud asks us, how bad is VAR against the Revs? Uh, some fans kind of took some issue yesterday with some uh, borderline calls. I, I think I'll 
refer, I'll call them borderline calls. Uh, one was a handball where there was a shot that came in. It bounced off. It looks like it bounced off of the arm of an RSL player, although his arm was kind of tucked in towards his body. Uh, and then Paul Mariner said on the Revs broadcast that he did not think it was a handball whatsoever. Uh, some people also took offense to at towards the end. Uh, there was a ball kind of in the box. The goalkeeper came out and kind of clipped Teal Bunbury. Um, Teal Bunbury kind of passed the ball back and then there was a bit of a collision and Bunbury went down in the box. Some people thought that should have been a penalty call. Um, neither one went to VAR, so I think a lot of people were a little upset. But, uh, Sean, I, I didn't think either one of those calls were egregious or clear and obvious errors, so I didn't have any issue with the, the referees not going to VAR. Uh, of the times the Revolution have gotten screwed by VAR, I, I did not consider this one of them. Uh, what were your thoughts on those calls? I know we don't have our refereeing expert Jake here, but uh, what were your thoughts on those calls, and do you think the Revs have a legitimate gripe to be uh, angry at VAR today? Yeah, I, I know both plays you're talking about, and the, the handball play um, was not a hand, was not a handball. You can't you can't call that a handball if if that goes against the revolution. I think Rev fans are rightly up in arms um, that you know the guys the guy's arms are in a national position. He, he's not moving it to make himself bigger and, and block the shot and block the cross. And that was you know absolutely the right call and didn't need to go to VAR. Um, the the Teal Bunbury play, I honestly didn't see an angle that would have said was a clear and obvious error. Maybe they did have that angle and should have gone to VAR. You know, at first glance, it, it did look like was potentially a foul. Um, but it's one of those plays that frequently doesn't get called. Uh, you know, there have been plenty of times this season where VAR has gone against the Revs. There's been plenty of times this season where VAR has helped the Revs. Um, you know, this, is, this isn't a game you can blame VAR on. You know, even if that's maybe should have been a penalty kick late, the fact that you're, you know, leaving it to stoppage time and, and, and haven't really had that many good chances on frame, um, it's, it's hard for me to, to blame VAR for, for this loss, for the, the revolution. And, um, you know, I would say this is one of the, the least controversial games in, in that sense. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. I, I think this isn't uh, neither one of them. I, I don't blame them for not going to VAR or being called. So uh, I, I think this is a game that we, in a result, we can't blame on the referees. I'll, I'll put it that way. One of the few times I can say it this year, but. Uh, Cmoney008 on Discord also asks us, uh, can Carlos Hill get back to his goal-scoring ways after being stuck on nine for a long time? Uh, he has been stuck on nine for a long time. He's trying to get into that 10-goal, 10-assist club, uh, which is more rare feat than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, Carlos Hill obviously had that chance in the first half where he had that long shot that clipped off the top of the bar. Uh, so another game where he's unable to find that 10th goal. Uh, Sean, do you think Carlos Hill uh, hits that 10-goal uh, mark sometime in these last three games? I mean, I, I think he's had to focus less on, on being the goal-scoring threat for the Revolution since they've gotten Gustavo Bo. Um, he only had two shots in, in this game. Um, but, you know, I do think the Revolution kind of need that from him. I think they need him to be more of a goal-scoring threat. Um, you know, with, with three games left, I expect him to find a way to, to get to 10 goals. Um, but, you know, as you saw in, in the first half, he, he almost took – he was almost one of the guys that took a little bit more ambition with Gustavo Bo out there and, you know, attempted that shot off the crossbar and – you know, it seems when, when Bo's out there, he's frequently looking to, to just find him and give Bo the opportunity to, to get a shot and, uh, you know, looks to him a lot. But I, I agree that you kind of need more of a goal-scoring threat out of him that we saw earlier in the season um, to, to be more of a danger than just having Bo out there trying to take all the shots. Jason Schmidt asks us, uh, is there a world where Kellen Rowe plays for the Revs again? I mean... I don't think so. Um, it's Bruce Arena now. Mike Burns is gone. Brad Friedel is gone. So I wouldn't say never, um, given those changes. But you know, even with the the poor season that Kellen Rowe has had, I, it, it still seems to me like you know, he's going to be a free agent this off season. 
Um, unless, you know, if he plays really well with RSL and RSL convinces them to, to come back and, you know, they give him a really good contract. Um, I have trouble seeing him going anywhere other than Seattle, even if he you know, has to take a little bit less money to go there. Uh, it just seems kind of kind of destined that he ends up back at his, at his hometown team in free agency. Um, and I, I'm not sure why he would come back to New England. He had a good, you know, reputation with the fans here. But, you know, with with how, how things played out and how he left, it, it just doesn't seem too likely that he'd be back here, given the stage of the career he's in and given, you know, he probably has an opportunity to, to go to his hometown team at this point. Uh, Rennie Swan asks us, uh, bigger need for the Revs, striker or center back? Uh, Sean, what's top of the list for the Revs this offseason? Yeah, um, you know, that's a tough one. I, I think I lean towards striker at this point. Um, I think they need both. And I think if they go through the offseason without signing both and also without signing fullback health, then help then they you know haven't done a good job um i expect them to to address all three of those areas as, as well as potentially another central midfielder um but if you were to ask me based on what we've seen in the past few games I'd, I'd say finding a you know really strong number nine might be more important even than than a center back and you definitely saw it in this in this game um and i think it's been the issue the past few games is that they, they haven't had that that guy to kind of feed off of um, and the number nine role where, where Bowen and Carly's heel can kind of lay off and, and that person can be the hold up guy up top. Bunbury does it sometimes. And, but, you know, finding someone that can do it consistently well um, could be a game changer for this team's offense. Yeah, I, I agree. And they, I, I know Juan Fernando Caicedo is going to be gone at the end of the season. I can't imagine the Revs using their purchase option on a guy that, um, you know, doesn't play 90 minutes uh, and, and giving him half a million in salary. Uh, so, I mean, that kind of leaves you with Teal Bunbury up top, which, again, he's very streaky. He has some pros. He has some cons. Um, Brian Wright, we talked about earlier. I'm not sure if they want to make him a full-time starter. I don't think they will. I, I think, if anything, Brian Wright will fill into the Juan Fernando Caicedo role next year if they decide to keep him. Uh, there's still a very good chance they don't keep him. Um, after that, who else do the Revs have at striker? Um, you know, I guess Renix could play up there. I, I guess they could put some trust into their young guys. But ultimately, I think if you're going into this uh, next season, the 2020 season with Teal Bunbury as your starting striker, um, I, I think that's going to cause some issues. Uh, I think you need a, a, someone better up there to finish chances. Uh, and I, I don't think Bo is going to be moving up to striker for the reasons we mentioned earlier. So uh, I think a striker is a bit more of a glaring need. Center back, you know, you have Tony De La Mea, you have Julio Anibaba, you have Andrew Farrell. Um, you know, those guys aren't a solid center back pairing. Uh, you know, those guys aren't the most intimidating defense, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in, in MLS. Uh, but they're they're serviceable. And I, I think we've seen them uh, show their value this season that even though they're not the most talented players, I'll say, um, you know, they've been able to kind of rotate in and out and get the team through the season. Uh, and I know Matt Turner kind of makes up for a few errors here and there. Uh, certainly he's had a, a wonderful season. Uh, I think a center back would really do a wonders in terms of solidifying that back line um, and, and really preventing more goals from going in. But uh, I, I think right now you need someone to, uh, you know, finish chances because as we saw yesterday, Gustavo Bo go, leaves the lineup or Carlos Hill leaves the lineup. Um, this team is a little bit lost. So I, I think they need a, another offensive player, um, which is a bit of a change from what we've said in the past. But I, I think this offseason they need another forward. Let's go into some final thoughts. Uh, do you have, oh, well, actually, I do have one question because a few people mentioned uh, on Twitter that Defender of the Year voting uh, has started this week and some people have. Uh, revealed their ballots. Uh, I think I know the answer to this question. I don't know if we've talked about it or if I just know you really well. I know where you're going to go with this, but uh, do you have any input on who the media members should vote for Defender of the Year? 
I mean, there's no longer you can no longer vote for the goalkeeper. So I don't think it's a contest. I think it has to be Andrew Farrell. He's the only guy that's played regularly all season and played, you know, at least decently well all season. Um, you know, De La Mea, I'm not sure, has played enough minutes. I think he's been decent, but I don't think he's played enough minutes to really overtake Farrell. Um, you know, I don't think any of Mancian hasn't been good enough. Annie Baba hasn't played enough. You know, Edgar Castillo, I don't think has been good enough. Um, Brandon Bay certainly, I don't think has been good enough. Um, so to me, there's, there's only one answer and it's Andrew Farrell. And I'm not really sure how an argument can be made for anyone else. Yeah. And, and just to kind of roll through, um, games played by has played 27 Farrell has played 26 then Dewan Jones and Edgar Castillo had both made uh, 20 appearances although Jones has played some right wing and he's kind of played up a little bit uh, and six of those appearances were subs Edgar Castillo has started 20 games uh, and then you also have Jaleel Anibaba he has 19 appearances and Tony De La Mea has 15 Mancy N I mean Mancy N's not even in consideration in my opinion because he's been out so long uh, so really in my mind this is a two-way race between Andrew Farrell and Brandon Bay. Um, I, I, you know, we've talked about Tuan Jones and he certainly is, you know, an incredible athlete and he can recover very well, but, um, you know, defensively, he still has some holes and I, I don't, I don't think he's really defender of the year. Uh, cause I just don't think defensively he's been good enough. Same with Edgar Castillo, you know, five assists. Um, he, he certainly has contributed offensively. Um, but I think any Ravs fan will tell you that. You know, defense is not his specialty. Brandon Bay, I, I think, has taken major strides defensively. Um, but, you know, you look at Andrew Farrell, uh, he played pretty solidly at right back. Uh, he moved to center back in the middle of the season and really has stepped up for this team at a position he struggled in in 2015. Uh, he's been the best center back on this team this season. Um, I don't see any argument outside of Andrew Farrell, and I think it's really well-deserved. Uh, he's really been um, the only player on that back line that has been I'll say defensively stable. I don't know if that's a, a fair statement to make, but um, everyone else kind of has a major flaw. I, I don't think there's anything that Andrew Farrell has done minus that NYCFC penalty he conceded. Um, I, I don't really have any memories of Andrew Farrell being a huge liability to this back line, whereas pretty much everyone else you can kind of point to some spots throughout this season that you know was a bit shaky. So um, yeah, a- Andrew, Andrew Farrell, I think, gets the nod, and I, I can't imagine he doesn't win. Uh, Sean, do you have any other final thoughts uh, before we wrap up here? Sean, are you still there? Sorry, I muted myself. You sure did. I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving that in just so everyone knows that uh, you you screwed up here today. You know, I'm I'm just trying to help you out with the editing so you don't have to edit out the background noise when when I'm not talking. I'm just I'm trying to do you a favor here. But I, I was just saying, I, I think it's going to be a fascinating final two weeks of the season, um, where the Revolution, you know, are in a position where they have to, where they're in a good position. They're in the, the seventh seed, but they're in a position where they have to get some points, or they're they're probably going to have to get some points to to clinch a playoff spot. Um, and one of three very difficult games that they have to to finish out the season. Um, we're unfortunately recording this episode before Portland plays their Sunday night game, so it's it's hard to say exactly what form they're going to go into to Wednesday's game for. But regardless of you know kind of the disappointing results Portland's had lately at home, um, you know playing playing in Portland is one of the most difficult stadiums to, to play, and they have some you know the very loud fan base. I've I've been to that stadium; it's, a, it's quite the experience if you ever have the opportunity to go. Um, so it, it's going to be a difficult game for the Revolution, and just one home game left for for the Revs. Um, you know I, I'm excited to see how the rest of this this season plays out for the Revolution. It's going to be a, a, a big test for the team, and, and hopefully something that they can use to, to build upon going into the next season. Even if this season you know ends as a seventh seed and a one and done in the playoffs. And I, I my final thoughts too also involve Portland 
But the other Portland, because uh, there was a news this week from the Portland Press Herald that says that uh, there's a group that's interested in bringing a USL team to Portland, Maine, uh, and I think that is the biggest no-brainer on earth. Uh, I gotta, I've, I've, you know, obviously have stood up for my uh, home state uh, of Maine, vacation land. Uh, I think they need a USL team. It's a great uh, soccer market. I think it's very underrated. Uh, high school soccer is one of the uh, bigger high school sports in the state. Uh, there's been some decent soccer talent that has come out of Maine. So uh, hopefully they get a USL team and, and, you know, they've supported the Sea Dogs. Uh, they have the Maine Red Claws uh, and they used to have the Portland Pirates. They now have an ECHL team. Uh, it's a great minor league city. Uh, let's bring the USL to Portland. I'm fully on board for that. And I think too with Hartford and a potential Revs 2 team uh, I, I wouldn't be shocked that if down the road we have a USL uh, League 1 New England division or a Northeast division uh, which I think would be really really great for the region so uh, hopefully things move well in that direction and hopefully we get some USL soccer to Maine. Yeah and, and one other note if you haven't seen Kai Kamara's goal over the weekend you should check that out because the former Revs scored quite the uh, the bicycle kick finish against Kansas City so if you're if you're a fan of good goals Make sure you check out ex-rev Kai Kamara. Um, but one thing I thought interesting there was he did do his, it was, the game was in Kansas City, and he did do his, his uh, heart-shaped hands celebration against his former team and against the fans that kind of embraced him and embraced that celebration more than any other. So I don't know what to make of that. Um, but it was a fantastic strike and well worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Is that part of the don't celebrate against your, your old team you know, was it was you know? Are, are you implying that it was a uh, disrespectful to not do the celebration in front of his old fans? Or are you saying that it was a um, you know don't celebrate against your old team type? I, of, I'm honestly just not sure what to make of that one because it was I think before the match he had posted some highlight where you know he was showing himself doing the same celebration and all the Kansas City fans in the crowd were doing the celebration and you know he was really embraced by Kansas City and I think he really embraced Kansas City so it was just more surprising to me. I don't think there was necessarily animosity there from from Kai because um, I think he you know, had a good time in Kansas City, but I just found it odd more than anything. And I don't, I don't know if I, if I don't like it or if I like it. Um, it was just different. Do you believe in not celebrating against your old team, or do you, do you believe in rubbing it in? I'm a, I'm a full rub it in guy. I think it depends on the scenario in which you left. If you played for a team for you know, 10 years and had a very good career there and then kind of left on your own terms, then I, then I don't think you should necessarily celebrate against your old team. If you left under harsh circumstances, then I'm, I'm fine with it. I know people were annoyed when, when I think Patrick Mullins first scored against the Revolution and, and he celebrated, but you know he left because the Revolution left him unprotected in the expansion draft, and that doesn't bother me. So I guess I, I, guess I take it on a case-by-case basis on, on whether or not I think you should celebrate against your old team. Yeah, Ke- Kellen Rowe and Lee Wynn didn't score against the Revolution this year, so I, I, we're safe at discussing this. I'm sure we'd feel a little differently if uh, they kind of went over their top with their celebrations. But uh, for the most part, I have no issue with it whatsoever. Just don't celebrate when you're running the score up against Thailand. That's what I say. <laughs> Sean, uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. And you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap and also like the Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Uh, also, please leave us for you on iTunes or wherever you're listening. The Revs have two matches this week as they play their game in hand on the road in Portland on Wednesday night, as we've talked about. Uh, and they also return to Foxborough for their last home game of the season against New York City FC. We'll be back next week to break it all down. But until then, thank you all for listening and go Revs.